James chapter 2, please. It's good to be back. For practical reasons, if you have some ropa vieja in the oven or maybe a chicken in the tandoori, I'm going to aim to finish about between 12.10 and 12.15. I don't want to put too fine a point on it because then you're going to be looking at the clock and you might come at me and say you were a minute over. I'm giving you a sort of an approximation there. I notice uh, in South Florida, time is a little more fluid, and that's good, because it's more important what we do here than what the clock says. Having said that, I don't want to belabor the patience of the saints or anyone else here, and so we'll get right to the Word of God. James chapter 2. <coughs> Pardon me, I do have a cold. I am on medicine. I have cough drops, so what you can do if you're... A believer in the Lord Jesus, you can pray for me that I don't cough too much. And I pray that if I do cough, that it shan't be a distraction to you from the Word of God. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James has this wonderful way of getting down to the heart of the matter, of not playing church, or in his case really, playing synagogue, because in verse 2 when he says, if there comes someone into your assembly, it's not the common word that we often read in our New Testament, and it's either translated church or assembly, a group of people that are called out, but this is the word synagogue. It's synagogue in Greek, the word which we bring synagogue into English. And it reflects the fact that James is at a very early juncture in the history of the church. Perhaps the oldest book of the New Testament, according to some, advised with Galatians and 1 Thessalonians for that honor. Very early in church history. And dealing with a lot of people coming out of the Jewish milieu. A lot of people who had been raised in Judaism, but now saw that God had fulfilled the prophetic scriptures in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were able to say in their language, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus is the Messiah. 
Jesus is the Christ in Greek. They would be able to affirm, this is the Savior come from God. This is the one who fulfills the Scriptures, the one that we're gathered unto. But at times it seems James has in mind a group of people that they're not quite all on the same page yet. Maybe there are unbelievers in the audience. Maybe there are Jews that haven't gone all the way and put their full faith and trust in the Lord. Or maybe there are believers, a lot of times when someone gets saved, using the metaphor of when the Lord Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, we sometimes speak of grave clothes. Now you remember what happened. The Lord Jesus' friend Lazarus died, and the Lord Jesus came, and though it was four days later, you could get out the paddles, the defibrillator, you could say clear all you want, Lazarus wasn't coming back, even if they had invented that technology. There was no CPR, artificial respiration, shot in the heart of adrenaline, nothing on earth that you could give that man to bring him back from the dead. He had been dead and in the grave for four days. And yet the Lord Jesus, who declares himself the resurrection and the life, came and with a word said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. But how did he come forth? Well, he came forth still in the the Judaistic grave clothes, and I probably look a little like Charlie Chaplin, so I'm not going to mimic him too much. But he came forth wearing that burial shroud that he was wound in, or those strips of linen, perhaps, how they would do it, with a body that was put in a tomb. And others had to come and strip away those grave clothes. Well, many times when we get saved, it would be nice if the Lord immediately downloaded everything we need to know right then, at the moment of conversion. When we trust the Lord Jesus, it would be beautiful if we had all of the doctrines, all of the practices, all of the things He wanted us to know and do. It would be lovely if that was suddenly downloaded to our brain. But it doesn't happen that way. In fact, it's a lifelong process. I've been saved since the summer of 1980. I was saved as a child of seven. And I have learned oh so much, not just... Learning as a child learns as they grow. They learn about life and the world and they mature. But learning in the things of God. It was lovely to see the children up here. And I have to say, your Sunday school children are dialed in. I mean, they're ready for the beach evangelism. Because if you can take heckling while you're saying the verses, you know, (laughs) that that young man wasn't going to be deterred. And the other fellow, he was telling him, now you be quiet. I said, yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. I'll take those guys out on the street with me anytime. But um, it's good to learn the Scripture when you're young. It's good to learn the Scripture when you come to Christ. But we never stop learning and we never stop growing because we're really being prepared not just to live in the 21st century, not just to live in the next decade or two or three or four or however much God gives us of life and until the Lord Jesus comes, but we are being prepared for eternity. So it is a lifelong process of learning of the Lord. Conversion is momentary. Nobody is born first a Christian in this world. Nobody comes into this world as a Christian. I don't care if eight generations behind you, your antecedents were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't have any grandchildren. You've got to be born again for yourself. You've got to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus personally. Conversion happens in a moment. The Lord Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, has, present tense, has eternal life. You get it right then. And you have, past tense, 
passed from death unto life. You've gone from being in a state of spiritually dead before God to being spiritually alive. And he says, future tense, you will not come into judgment. John 5.24 So it's a wonderful salvation that God calls us to, which begins in a moment, the moment when we turn from ourself and our sin, and we say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, give me that eternal life, that free gift, based on your shed blood, the fact that you died on the cross for my sin and rose again for my justification. Lord, give me that gift. Save me or I die. That begins in a moment. But that eternal life that's implanted within us is an organic thing that grows and develops under the influence of the Spirit of God as He unpacks the Word of God and as He uses, our church, uh, uses the church rather in our lives and helps us to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have to look at things here at being at a really nascent, a very early stage in the history of the church and with people that have just come to Christ or many that are still hearing the gospel and perhaps weighing whether they will come to Christ or not. But he writes here to those who are believers in the midst of this community. And he gets right to the point. He says, verse 1, Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Or, as the King James says, with respect of persons. I'm using the New King James this morning. <coughs> Mainly because I couldn't find my King James in my luggage in a hurry. So, anyway, I, I go back and forth which ones I use for different occasions. But, this verse is lovely in that it reminds us the basis of the exhortation is that this is not some man-made religion. This is not a worldview or a philosophy constructed by human intellectuals. This is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, I thought faith was belief. And indeed, those two terms in the New Testament are often synonymous. It's the same Greek word we use to translate both. But when it talks about the faith, it is the body of truth that is belief. It is something that's been revealed through the Lord Jesus. And you see how he describes the Lord here. He calls him the Lord Jesus. He says here that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Or literally, the Lord Jesus Christ of glory. It is a statement of his deity. It is saying that one who came and inhabited the tabernacle of our ancestors in the Old Testament in Israel, that glory that came down and filled the holy place, that is the same one that we're looking to. It is His faith that we are believing. And so on that ground, we are not to show partiality in our gatherings. We are not to have that exist in our synagogue. Now, it's a very current topic, isn't it? Because we look around at the state of our nation, and unfortunately, there are many things in the news about the reality of man's hatred toward his fellow man. And that exhibits itself in different ways. Sometimes it exhibits itself in racism. And I'm sad to say that racism is a reality, not just in the United States, but I believe every country I've ever been to in the world, or every one I've read about or heard about, has its own issues with racism. Because racism flows out of sin. Hatred of any form of that unspiritual kind. The only thing it's right to hate is what God hates. God hates sin. God hates evil. God hates what hurts and defaces and deforms people. God doesn't hate people, however. God so loved the world, we heard the little children say it, 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 God is a God of love, a God who loves all men, a God who calls himself in the New Testament the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of the Jews, but the Savior of the Gentiles. Well, guess what? Regardless if you're today from Cuba or from Guatemala or the Dominican Republic or from Kerala or from Long Island, New York or from even a few Pennsylvanians, amazing, the grace of God is wide, you see. God is saving people from all over such that the book of Revelation lets us peer into heaven and John sees there a great multitude, a tremendous crowd of people composed of every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. God goes right down to the kindred, the family level. And He says, I'm going to save people for my glory. You know, I've met people, they're the only person in their family that is saved. Some people, when they come to Christ, their family cuts them off. Some religions, when people come to Christ, their family holds a funeral for them. Some religions, when people come to Christ, their family themselves become a threat to them. They want to kill them for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's sad. But the wonderful truth of God's Word is, God has another family, a surrogate family. In fact, a family that transcends the natural family. We love our natural families. God said, honor thy father and mother. God wants brothers and sisters in natural families to love each other. But even beyond all of that, there's a spiritual family. I heard about Brother Chris Schroeder. Perhaps some of you know him. He does a lot of street work through his Ezekiel project. And I went through a seminar uh, several years ago now where he taught us how to do street preaching with a sketchboard. And he used to have people give testimonies from time to time. And he said he had this one group of people. I can't remember whether he was in Chicago or in New York, but he was in a big city. And he had one man who was a really tall man from Nigeria. And he was extremely dark as to his complexion. A tall Nigerian man. You can picture that, okay? He had another man who was raised in the Jewish faith, but like these in the audience of James, had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Had seen that the Lord Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. And so this Jewish man had been converted... He happened to be short, and he was actually an albino. So you can imagine that here's a man whose hair is practically whitish blonde with extremely fair skin, and he's next to this other man who's a very tall, dark-complected Nigerian man. And they would get up there, and they would say, the, the little guy would say, this man is my brother. And, you know, people would stop, and their eyes would get about that big. But it's true, isn't it? It's wonderful to sit down around the symbols that the Lord Jesus has left of what He did in offering His body and shedding His blood, and we can sit down with people that may look completely different than us. Even within our own ethnic groups, we're all different looking, aren't we? I mean, some of us, we're really strange looking. And I know you're thinking that of me. That's okay. You're allowed. But, you know, it doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter our cultural background. It doesn't matter our socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter our level of education. Here's the thing. Have you been purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you bowed the knee to Him and received Him as your Lord and Savior? 
to the person who receives him, John chapter 1 tells us in verse 12, to as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God. Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to stop people and say, how much money do you have in the bank? How educated are you? You know, there was a time in our country, to our shame, that certain places had voting tests. And you had to be able to pass the test in order to vote. It was totally unconstitutional and wrong. And there were different tests used based on what your race might be. And people were disqualified from their right to vote. God has no such thing in his church. He says, brethren, hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons. I can tell you, people can be extremely educated. It will not deliver them from racism. Take Nazi Germany, for example. One of the most educated nations on the face of the earth in the pre-war period. People that had doctorates and universities that were the envy of most of the civilized world and people going there from the United States and from other countries to do graduate work in the sciences and in the humanities and in Bible study and all kinds of different disciplines. And yet, in this very educated nation that produced Nobel laureate after Nobel laureates, they gave in to a horrible type of racism that led to the systematic slaughter of six million Jewish people. Educated people did that. It was, of course, people of every education level that carried it out. But who do you think dreamt it up? It was the people that changed the philosophy faculties of Nazi Germany. It was the people that changed the biology faculties that said, we're going to go out and because we believe in evolution, we're going to prove biologically that the Aryan people, the Germans, are superior and these other races are inferior and therefore we can do all kinds of horrible things to them and it's okay because we're the master race. No, it's rubbish, isn't it? The only thing that delivers from racism is the Lord Jesus Christ renovating a human heart. And even then, it can die slowly, I'm sad to say. It doesn't have to be racism, you know. It can be someone of our own race, someone of our own background, someone who's very similar to us, and we can still hold them partial. Because the issue that James focuses in on is not really a racial one, it's an economic one. He says, here comes a man into your assembly. It must have been Fashion Week or something, as you have down here. That's in Miami, right? I try to look culturally relevant once in a while, like I know what's going on. You know, in-flight magazines are great for that sort of thing. But anyway, I really don't know much about uh, what goes on. But let's just say it was Fashion Week. And here comes this fellow. He comes in. He's got the gold rings on. No, he's got all the bling, the jewelry, and he looks great. He's got this Rolex sundial on, and there he comes in. He's wearing the Armani toga, and he's got the Gucci sandals and uh, some sort of Estee Lauder fragrance or Calvin Klein or whomever it may be, you know, that all the, the rich wear. And they say, oh, look at this man. Oh, he's coming into our synagogue. I just can't wait to pass the basket this morning. Isn't it going to be great? I mean, I told you we should have put credit card machines in the synagogue for the offering. And it'll be great, won't it, uh, when this man gives us something. So, oh, you sit here, verse 3, in a good place. But then there comes in a poor man. And he's wearing filthy clothes. And you look at that poor man, you say the rich man, oh, there's a very comfortable pew here. I mean, you know, some of them, they're 
that's comfortable, but this is, this is the plush, lazy boy 2000 pew. And you sit here in this pew, and you sit at this nice place, and in comes the poor man in his filthy clothes. Oh. Well, I, I guess you didn't get the memo about the assembly dress code, did you? Uh, I guess you didn't hear, old boy, that cleanliness is next to godliness. And Oh, you're a believer, are you? Yes, but it's a shame you don't look the part. You do look a bit shabby, you know. But it's all right. Uh, we have to be gracious, after all. You come in and sit down by my footstool, you know. You can sit right by my feet. There, do you have a good view of my feet for the meeting? There's where you can sit. Now, imagine that. Treating... The rich very well, and the poor not so well. It's easy to fall into that kind of trap, you know. Because after all, the rich tend to be polished. They tend to smell good. You don't mind when they sit next to you in the pew. You don't mind. You don't have to worry whether you're downwind or not. They don't tend to come in and sort of be an eyesore. They, they look respectable, and you think, oh, if anybody's walking by, surely this is a good statement for the kind of people we attract here. We want them to know that it's the better classes we're here for. And look here, we've got this uh, rich man here, and he looks good in all his finery, but there's that poor man. Mm. Just wish he have gotten some better clothes before he came in here. Now, he says, verse 4, Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You're sitting there, and you're looking at two men, and you're evaluating them, not based on their spiritual condition at all. You're basing it on what they look like outwardly. That's the wrong sort of criteria to evaluate anyone by. You've become judges with evil thoughts. He says, listen, my beloved brethren. He's not trying to be mean to them, but there's an important principle at stake, and he still loves them. He says, listen, my beloved brethren. Verse 5, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? It's interesting. When the Lord Jesus came to earth and was outlining his program, for what he had in mind, what his reign would be like. <clears throat> the Lord enunciated some core principles. We call them beatitudes, after the word for blessed, because each of them starts with the word for blessed. That means this person is favored, or they're happy even. And the Lord Jesus started in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, in thinking about that passage, I've often tried to come up with an example in the English language of some usage of the word poor that we use positively. I haven't done it myself. You might be more imaginative or better read than I am, and you might have one to tell me after the meeting, and that's fine. But suffice it to say, there are very few times when we use the word poor where it's flattering or where we would aspire to whatever we're describing. So if you say someone's economically poor... That's generally not considered a good thing, right? Like children aren't expected to say when they go to school, when I grow up, I want to be poor, you know? I mean, the teacher would probably haul you in for a parent-teacher conference on that one. Or if you say someone's a poor judge of character, again, that's not flattering, is it? Or if they have poor taste in their sense of humor, Oh, you definitely don't. If they say, I've got a joke for you, you just turn and walk the other way, you know? 
But the Lord Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Not just the poor, but the poor in spirit. In other words, those whose attitude, those who look at themselves spiritually, and they say, I'm poor. They would use the language of top ladies hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I don't come telling God, I'm a great guy. You're very fortunate to have me on your side, God. You know, I'd make heaven a a great sort of place. I'd be a real credit to heaven. No, we come saying, I'm poor in spirit. We come saying, I don't have anything that I can contribute to God of myself that in any way makes God more glorious or better. He can bring glory from my life by what He does. He can bring glory by saving me out of what I am and by transforming me, making me a new creation in Christ Jesus. So He can bring glory. Amazingly, Ephesians 1 speaks about His inheritance in us. But in and of ourselves, there's nothing we can give to God. We come saying, God, I'm poor. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. When the Lord Jesus came into the world further, what kind of a man was he? Well, he wouldn't have made Forbes 500 list. He wouldn't have been on one of those lists of, you know, the top who's who of the rich and famous. The Lord Jesus, when he wanted to use a coin in an illustration, had to ask for one. The Lord Jesus, when he needed to pay a temple tax that really he was under no obligation to pay, but in grace to keep the testimony of the gospel as it was going forth at that moment, the Lord had Peter go out and catch the offering in the mouth of a fish. He performed a miracle to do it. When the Lord Jesus had a person come and say, Rabbi, I'll follow you wherever you go. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. The Lord Jesus was a poor man. And there's nothing especially spiritual or holy about poverty in itself. You can be a very spiritually dead, very spiritually defiled poor person. But here's the thing, you cannot be saved without owning yourself to be a spiritually poor person before God. And even if God has made you rich, you're not to live in dependence on your things. You're to live in dependence on God. Now, if I had time, I'd go over to 1 Timothy 6, and I would show you there that he tells them to warn those who are rich not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but to trust in the living God. So there were people in the church that had riches, and God didn't say to them, now give away all your wealth. But He did say, don't trust in your wealth. And if you look at the full biblical teaching on wealth, especially in the New Testament, the idea is those that God entrusts with wealth are to use it for the advancement of His things and for the benefit of His people and to help others and to help the poor. They're not told necessarily to give away everything all at one shot, but they aren't to live trusting in their bank account or in the things they have. Now that's important, because if God had just put a dollar figure on it and just said, if you're worth so much, here's what you do, and if you're not worth that much, well, then you're okay, then we'd all be thinking, he's not talking about me. But guess what? Whatever economic status we're at, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says everything you have is his. 
He says you are to be a steward of everything you have. Not just the material stuff you own, but your bodies. They're to be presented to God as living sacrifices. And your time. Ephesians says we're to redeem the time because the days are evil. But there's nothing wrong with being poor in and of itself. If that's the position God has you in, and you can't do anything about it, that's where you are, that doesn't in any way diminish your spiritual value before God. You can be rich in faith. Why can you be rich in faith? Because a poor person doesn't have that nest egg to fall back on. They can't just say, well, I'm covered for that, you know. Or I've got something laid up that whatever happens, I won't have any troubles. That may be so with physical things. But what have we laid up for eternity? That's the question. No, he says, God's chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which those He promised who loved Him. But you've dishonored the poor man, verse 6. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the cords. Now here's the flip side. Being poor doesn't keep you from coming to the Lord or receiving salvation or being used of God and having spiritual riches. That's wonderful. Nor does being rich for that matter, but here being rich can often be a detriment to the spiritual life. Because the rich people often think, well, I've got to keep what's mine, and I've got to keep away these poor people, and I've got to take them to court and get everything I have. When I'm in a business transaction, I don't care how much the other guy has, I've got to take care of my own. And he says, don't they? They're the first ones who are ready to be litigious. They're ready to call the lawyer and take you to court. Represented by Dewey, Cheatham, and Howell, no doubt. But anyway, there they are. He says further, verse 7, Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Again, an inferred comment on the deity of our Lord. Blasphemy literally is evil speaking. But it came to have the technical sense in the Scripture of evil speaking regarding God and His things. They're blaspheming the noble name of the Lord Jesus. It's often the rich that say, I don't want that Gospel. I don't want your Jesus. I don't want someone who puts everybody on the same level and says everybody has to come the same way. They have to come saying, I'm spiritually poor. I need the wealth that God can give, the salvation, the free gift He gives. I don't want that, they say. You look at the different tycoons that have lived even in our own time, people like Andrew Carnegie a hundred years ago who wanted to earn his way to heaven by what he gave away. Or more recently, people like Steve Jobs who much preferred Eastern religion to Christianity because it didn't make any demands upon him regarding his sin. Well, it could be a very real problem in real life. And he says, you're not being practical about this. You think welcoming in the rich man, he's going to build up the assembly better? No, remember what the royal law of the Scripture says. Now, we have to know that Galatians and Romans teach us that we are not under law, but under grace. We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Mosaic law, that law given at Sinai, has one function in Scripture. And Galatians 3 reaffirms this, and so does Romans 4 and other passages. It condemns us. It tells us we are spiritually sick. But having said that, the Lord Jesus said, 
I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Because after all, the righteous principles that God was aiming at in the law, what He was describing to us as right and wrong, hasn't changed. So even though we're not under law as a means of salvation, nor for that matter as a means of sanctification, now under the new covenant, God takes His righteous principles and the righteous requirement of the law, as Romans 8.3 says, that requirement is done through us as we walk in the Spirit. The Spirit, to quote Hebrews 8, writes on our hearts and on our minds His laws. Now it's not looking to the external law, it's looking into the Word of God and letting the Spirit teach us these principles and empower us to live according to it. But he says, just think about what the Scripture says. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you show partiality, if you have respect of persons, verse 9, you commit sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. You know, you look at yourself and you think, I'm a, a righteous person in the gathering. I'm a righteous person in the assembly. And yet you look at others and judge them. You're not really loving your neighbor as yourself. Because God didn't give that instruction, love your neighbor as yourself, and put an asterisk behind it, uh, given that they're not nasty, given that they dress appropriately, given that they make enough and smell okay. No, there's no sort of disclaimer. Our neighbor is whomever we meet. Our neighbor is the people all around us. Our neighbor are the other folks in the human race, and we're to love them as ourselves. Something that's completely impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, he says, verse 9, and are convicted by the law as transgressors, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. Now we meet so many people that are trying to carefully cultivate their righteous facade by what they do. They're trying to earn their way to heaven. And they say, I do this, and I do that, and I do the other thing. He says, listen, God doesn't grade on a curve. His righteous standard is this way. You break one point, you've broken it all. It was no good saying, you know, for 20 years now, I've been married to the same woman and I've been faithful to her. But in the 21st year, I got tired of her and decided I'd go out and have a fling one night. Sorry, you're a transgressor of the law. Or for 20 years now, I've been driving on Interstate 95 in South Florida and I've suffered under the people that cut me off and the people that tailgate me and the people that weave in and out and the people that make obscene gestures and wave their fist at me. I've put up with all that for 20 years. I've been a most patient and loving person, haven't ever retaliated, but today I'm going to blow one of their heads off with the shotgun in my trunk. He says, you know, it's all very good to have that standard of you've not done this before, but what are you doing? So you haven't committed murder. Have you committed adultery? And we remember that the Lord Jesus told us that adultery extends not just to the act, but to the lusts of the heart, to look on a woman and lust after her. He says, so speak, verse 12, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, he used that phrase back in chapter 1, verse 25, and he calls it the royal law in verse 8 of this passage. Law, we have to remember, wasn't just rules and regulations. Torah to the Jews was teaching, first of all. It was instruction. It was what God wanted. So you look into the Word of God and you say, what's the will of God? Well, he's saying here, we've got to plug in the Word of God in our gatherings. It's no good behaving 
just like everybody else does. And judging other people uh, based on their economic condition and treating them badly in the assembly. No. What we have to do here is recognize that God is going to examine us based on His Word. And He says, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now the Lord put this positively in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If we're not merciful, there's consequences to that. If we're a believer, the Lord's going to chasten us. The Lord's going to discipline us. We might have different stripes, to use the language of Matthew 18, to train us, to change our attitude about things. You know, the Christians had to go through that. Even Peter himself had to have that sheet lowered three times to show him that God was cleansing the Gentiles. And he said, I learned what God has cleansed you can't call common. So whatever person, whatever's true about them in a human level, physically, how they dress, what background they come from, what their limitations are, we look at them and we see them not as they are as a human being, but what they are to God purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we cannot have partiality against them. Rather, we show mercy. We show compassion. We show kindness in action. That's Christianity. Not just the doctrine of saying we love people, that's important, but showing we love people by not showing partiality in God's assembly. May the Lord help us to do that. Father, we're thankful for thy good word that is so practical. And we pray we'd live in the light of it. We can't do it in our own strength. We have these old grave clothes, these biases and prejudices and our own ignorance and foolishness. We confess it readily, Father. We need thy spirit to teach us. We need him to fill our hearts with love. Love for others. Love for people that are very different from us in certain respects. But we share this common thing that we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're part of the same body. We're members of the same family. And even for those who come in our gatherings who aren't saved, that we'd love them as well. That we'd love them for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. That just as He loved us when we were unlovely, so we would love the unlovely. And we would tell them about the love of God displayed in Christ and given through faith in the work He has done in dying and rising again and ascending on high and coming again. Help us, Father, we pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.